0: Welcome to the sixth episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. I'm Gary Naylor. This week, we're looking at the cricket career of media personality Phil Tuffers-Tufnell. And in our second innings, we'll focus on England's ill-fated 1993 tour to India. For every 333 that grabs the limelight, there's a 123 just as important, if not quite as visible. The 80s and 90s Cricket Show is sponsored by Anderton Law the firm that specialises in employment matters. So if you have any issues at work, do not hesitate to contact them at andertonlaw.co.uk. Our guests this week are Pat Murphy, author and veteran BBC cricket reporter. Hello, Pat. Hello, Gary. We're also joined by Peter Hayter, columnist at the Cricket Paper and Ghostwriter 4, amongst others, Ian Botham and Marcus Truscothic. Hi, Peter. Morning, all. Morning, Reggie. And Graham Gooch, who, well, if you need an introduction, you're listening to the wrong podcast. Don't forget you can find us on the web at 80 sand and it's been a pleasure to see so many listeners contacting us via Twitter at Crickshow80s90s. You're a Twitter man, Pat. Have you had any feedback? I am, Gary. It's been a flame. Every time I turn on, there's some uh
1: some, some eulogies. Um... One, Jeff Grimshaw. Hello, Jeff. This has quickly become my favourite podcast, he tweets. The mix between former players and journalists is perfect. And as a long-suffering cricket fan from England, fast approaching 50, this era is right in my wheelhouse. It's a new phrase I'm going to to adopt. And here's one, actually, from a former colleague of mine, Mark Pugach, who used to present a lot of BBC Radio sports programmes. Mark says, enjoy this on a wet autumnal afternoon, and a great concept. I can confirm that no money changed hands for that tweet.
0: <laughs> Splendid. Well, uh, with that to keep up with, we'll start our show this week proper. So I'd like to come to you first, Peter. Uh, Philip Tufnell, um, what was the young man like, the expelled schoolboy, the rebel without a cause? Well,
2: as far as I know and in conversations with him working on his first autobiography back in the 90s the young Tufnel was very much like the slightly older Tufnell, and the Tufnel that is now he, he's always been a complete nutcase and he's a rebel without a cause a rebel without a clue I would have said <laughs> I mean he, he his early life was affected very deeply by the tragedy, early loss of his mother but um, that has happened to others as well uh, who don't turn out like toughers. Um, he, I think, from a very early age decided that uh, if that was going to happen to him, then nothing was worth bothering a- overly much with in terms of trying to do schoolwork or create a good impression or toe the line. He was set off on, on the path of uh, rebellion from an early age and uh, has never never left it. Yes, he was expelled from his public school. He was also then kicked out of his uh, the state school that he went to. In fact, no school could hold him. And when he went to Middlesex and he, he came back to uh, cricket because his father basically insisted that he do something other than sit down uh, at the Space Invader machine at the kebab shop and, and waste his money on that. Uh, and he was dragged back to cricket by his dad. Fortunately, he found a a way back into life, which was through bowling people out, impressed people at his club cricket, went to Middlesex, uh, a good place to, you would have thought, to be taught in school in the ways of doing things properly, and my God, what a struggle they had with him. At the end of virtually every season, uh, the question was, are we going to put up with this bloke any longer? And they did, and they kept faith with him when a lot of, uh, you know, in a lot of other walks of life, they've just shown in the door. And he got a, they got a test career out of him. And, and he has gone from strength to strength through the test career into this um, high-profile media uh, life. Uh, and the saving grace all the time with Tuffers is that he's very, very funny and great
0: company. Uh, and that's what's got him through. Well, we'll look at some of the uh, staging posts to that uh... Extraordinary life that you've uh, outlined there, uh, Peter. But uh, I want to come to Graham. Um, Graham, you were the captain that got the most out of uh, Phil Tufnell as an England uh, bowler. But when did you first meet him? What, what was your, what were your thoughts on this uh, this mercurial operator? Well,
3: firstly, hello everyone. Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever heard that before. That I've got the most out of uh, the cat, so to speak, Philip Roderick. I did give him his test debut in Australia in um, 1990 at the uh, Melbourne Cricket Ground. We'll come to that in a minute. But uh, I think I first met him, actually, when we played Middlesex at the county ground at Chelmsford and he was bowling to me. I can't remember whether he got me out or not, but I remember I have a slight suspicion that he gave me a little bit of a send-off. I was England captain (laughs) at the time and uh, he he sort of marked the scalp, so to speak, and that was very much like Tuffers. And... uh, he was an up-and-down character. He was the sort of guy that uh, could dominate you as a batsman because he had good control, good flight, but also he had some frailties with his temperament, which uh, I think uh, was there for all to see as his Test career progressed.
0: Yes, um, just to finish off the early days of, of Phil Tufnell, uh, Pat, what were your impressions of, of him as he was coming through? Well, first of all, aesthetically, I thought he looked a lovely
1: bowler. You know, some um, slow left arm bowlers, they, they don't do the, do the action justice, do they? But he had a beautiful flight and a follow through in a lovely, lovely high action. I particularly remember that 1991 tour when he got his first test match wicket. And Graham, as England captain, went up to congratulate him. And he just shrugged Graham off. And I remember thinking to myself, what's all that about? Now, I think, Graham, that was the time we did a run-in with the Australian umpire. Didn't he ask the umpire, Peter McConnell, how many deliveries there were to be got in in his over? And apparently the umpire said,
3: count them yourself, you pommy bastard. Is that right? (laughs) It might well have been. I I remember him getting down on his knees in that match at uh, Melbourne and begging the umpire. But... um, (laughs) I think Peter McConnell was the sort of umpire that if you got on the wrong side of him, you were not going to get anything out of him. And uh, I think that proved to be the case uh, in that match.
1: Do you remember him shrugging off your congratulations for his first Test wicket? Sort of.
3: I I remember him not fielding the ball too well off his own bowling. And also, I I got the impression quite quickly that uh, he was scared of the ball when he came in the field. Um, (laughs) And lots of players... Uh, made that comment you know Um, of course there there was a great line from Ian Chappell he said that there's always one advantage when Phillips bowling is that he can't be fielding can he
2: (laughs) (laughs) the launch of the Phil Tufnell Fielding Academy wasn't it on that tour in Australia they absolutely loved him and they loved the fact that he was like he was but also they loved the fact that he was hopeless at the field and also terrified of a fastball when batting I mean uh, any excuse not to stand in the way of some pace. There was a there was a great sledge in Australia once, if you may recall. The guy shouted out,
1: "Here, Tufnell, lend us your brain. I'm building an idiot. Yes.
3: Uh, one line I do remember is once playing, I can't remember where it was, the West Indies probably, and, uh, and our physio, Dave Roberts, he was number 11, uh, the cat batting, I think, probably after Devon Malcolm, which is, debatable who should be number 11, that's for sure. And he got Dave Roberts, I think, the physio, to go and sit by the gate at Edgbaston. And we all said, why are you doing that? And he said, well, when Merv Hughes hits me, I want the physio straight out there. (laughs) (laughs) I'll
0: just just throw in my uh, first impression of of Phil Tufnell, certainly in sort of uh, real life, so to speak. I remember going to Uxbridge uh, to see Lancashire play Middlesex, they were playing uh, one of those matches on the outgrounds, and Phil Tufnell was walking round the boundary, puffing on a cigarette, looking very, very nervous at the prospect of going into bat against Wasim Akram, who was bowling at the speed of sound with the uh, wind behind him, and he he didn't look like a cricketer at all. And then in the field, of course, we all know his fielding; he didn't look like a cricketer at all. And then uh, he was he was tossed the ball came into bowl and it was this whirlwind of, of arms and speed over the ground and a phrase that became popular a bit later of energy through the crease. And he was just completely transformed once he had ball in hand and was, and was bowling. And I don't think I've seen anybody who looked kind of less like a cricketer walking around the outfield and then more like a cricketer when he was about to uh, run into bowl. Um, extraordinary contrast If it approach- was just about bowling, he'd have been fine. Yeah, he'd have played 100 tests, as, yeah. uh, as often remarked. Uh, but I want to just look at the, the the bowling, and I'll come to you if I may, Graham. What is it that made him such a good bowler? And then when one looks at his career, he's sort of in and out of the test side and various other things. We have mentioned, obviously, the temperament. What made him not such a good bowler?
3: I, I think uh, Philip, throughout his career, when people got to know him or believed they got to know him, he polarised thoughts from various captains, from various senior players. They either uh, could accept him, the way he behaved, the way he carried on, on the side of his cricket skills, or they didn't accept it. So you had sort of different camps of people who rated Philip and people who didn't rate, not rate his bowling, but uh, as a person, did they want that type of person in the side? Uh, you weren't always sure what you were going to get with him because he, he was a little bit up and down um, mentally. In in my last tour of Australia in 94, I wasn't captain. He, he went through some difficult times personally, and he was very up and down on and off the field. But I think he had all the skills of a top-class uh, spin bowler. You know, you, you look at some of his performances, uh, Christchurch in 92 against the West Indies when he bowled him out at the Oval. We tend to like Playing at the Oval because it was late season, end of summer, dry wickets, a little bit of turn, um, he excelled. But um, he had all the skills, the flight, the variation. He wasn't a great spinner of the ball, but he he could attack a batsman if he felt he could dominate them. I think where his frailties were is that a lot of the better sides, better players, decided to attack his character. Not verbally, but with the bat put him under pressure they would go after him as a bowler and I think that's where he wilted and sometimes didn't want to perform didn't want to bowl these sort of guys and then wanted to come back maybe when it was a little bit easier and I think to be a successful bowler uh, a spin bowler in particular you're not going to have good days you know people are going to come after you and they're going to get the better of you you've got to be resilient you've got to be a good competitor in fact you have to be a little bit ag- aggressive maybe towards the batsman and show him the batsman what you're about and, and philip could wane a little bit and certainly the australians in that early 90s period got got after him quite a lot i think that's where he failed on the other hand when when he had the ascendancy and it was going well and he felt he was on top you know he could be a match winner and it, he he took the match for us in christchurch in 92 i remember Uh, New Zealand, Martin Crowe, their captain, was batting to the end at Lancaster Park, the old rugby ground, and looked like it was going to be a draw because if they batted a bit longer, he was in with a number 11, the time would have run out and he got a bit of help from Alex Stewart, a bat pad, Robin Smith at Silly Point, you know, sledging. Martin he ended up hitting up the air to so Derek Pringle sort of deep mid-off and, and they lost the game and the cat got seven for. So he had his moments, but um, you know, he, people have mixed opinions about him.
2: I think the thing that I've noticed mostly about Phil was that he wasn't very good at taking the rough with the smooth. Uh, I think you've alluded to that, Graham. When he was on top, he was really on top. But if people got after him, he found it difficult to handle. But what happened then was that he was very conscious of what other people thought of him. You know, he was supposed to be the match winner. He was supposed to be, particularly on turning wickets, the guy who won you the game. And if it wasn't happening, um, he sort of retreated a bit. He didn't know how to respond to that, other than just to get crosser. Uh, and he used to get so cross on the field. He was always rucking with umpires, with his with opponents, with his, with his own teammates. As you know, Graham, that's happened on more than one occasion. And he would just lose his focus because he got so cross and he got so concerned that people were looking at him and judging him and saying, what's wrong with Tuffner? why isn't he bowling the other side out? I'll tell you that one of the worst things that happened to Phil Tuffner was Shane Warne. Because when England played that test match, um, that series in the early 90s and Shane Warne bowled that ball against Mike Gatting uh, to Old Trafford, Tuffer suddenly thought to himself, hang on, they're going to expect me to be bowling like that now. And put himself under tremendous amount of pressure because of that. When things were going well, fine. When they weren't, he catastrophized. He was very good at uh, thinking that everything was going wrong and he couldn't get it back. He couldn't make it go right. There was an insecurity about him,
1: which is still there, in my opinion, in his broadcasting career. You do things with Philip, you record things for BBC Radio Sport, I'd sit alongside him, or if it was live, and afterwards you'd say, was that OK? You sure, did I do right? Was that okay? Is that what you wanted? Uh, you sure? Are you sure? And I said, tough as it was fine, just be yourself. And yet, he always needed reassurance in that capacity. And this is, you know, in his 40s, long after he'd retired. And that, um, fielding academy jibe that we were laughing about 94 5 in Australia, I think he saw that as a bit of a Badge of honour, a bit of a compliment. And I don't think he seemed to realise that the Aussie supporters were laughing at him because he needed so much to be buttressed to feel good about
2: himself uh, because of his insecurity. He knew they were laughing at him when he yep. tried to effect that run out at the SCG and. And missed the stumps from about two feet with a ball in his hand, with both the war twins at one end. That's right. Um, I think they were. Lo- I think they understood they were laughing at him. He could field, you know. He could occasionally pull off spectacular catches. If you, in fact, if you go on YouTube and look at look up Phil Tufnell spectacular catches, they are pretty spectacular. The more so because it's him t- pulling them off. But um, <laughs> I, 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 I thought think the you're other, right <laughs> yeah, yeah, That was the other thing, wasn't it? Um, when Tuffers field of his own bowling, even of his own bowling, where you're supposed to, you know, take every catch that's offered. If the ball came too quick at him, he, wasn't, he didn't fancy it that much. But he did have extraordinary highs and lows. And I think deep down, as as uh, Pat said, there is an insecurity in Phil. I remember so many times after a game, he would come to me and I say, was it coming out all right? Did it come out all right? And I'm sure, Graham, you've heard that a thousand times from him. He t- maybe just didn't believe in himself quite enough. He was always expecting the worst to happen. And sometimes because of that, it did.
3: I think I think you're right there. He was a, on the cricket field, sometimes was a half-empty sort of person. And, you know, spin bowling is, is one of those unique uh, professions where you are put under a hell of a lot of pressure because normally in a cricket match, if the wicket's decent, you know, Fast bowling, medium pace bowling, swing bowling, spin bowling, you know, you all get on with it. Soon as you, as you've alluded to, as soon as you come onto a turning wicket, all the players, bar none, turn to the spinner, or both spinners if you're playing two, and they expect them to win the match. It's a given. It, there is no debate about it. They look at them. And, they, and the batsmen in particular they say, well, this is a struggle getting runs out here. You know, you've got to really earn your runs. You've got to show good technique. You've got to have a bit of luck, you know, because there's lots of balls with your name on it. So the pressure is on before you've even bowled a ball to make the difference in the match. And that goes for every spinner, not just Phil.
0: Um, Just bearing out uh, your point there about uh, Phil Tufnell being something of a girl with a curl, and when he was good, he was very, very good, and when he was bad, he was awful. In the 11 tests he played in that he won, he averaged less than 20 with the ball, And with the 31 tests he played in, which were drawn or lost, he averaged over 50. Now, you always get a kind of spread from a spinner, but that is a a remarkable difference in terms of his uh, individual performances in tests won and tests not won.
1: I don't have the stats to hand, but I'd be very interested to see what his bowling average and success rate was against Australia, who at that time were one of the great all-time test units. They just got after Tufnell. They had that tungsten, steel, mentally strong man, Shane Warne there, winning test matches, uh, not just because of his brilliance, but also the force of his personality. But it's interesting to see how the three captains, major captains that that dealt with Tufnell Um, how they saw him. Graham would be in both camps, I imagine. Uh, Sorry to summarise your views, Graham, but you could see his merit and you gave him his start in international cricket. Alex Stewart, during his time as England captain, didn't pick him once, whereas Mike Atherton obviously felt it was worth rolling with the punches, as it were, because he'd win you the odd test match. So Atherton kept more faith of him than Stewart, for example. It was always very much a case of personal taste from the captains in relation to Phil Tufnell, rather than him being an automatic choice.
3: I would agree with that. I mean, um, you had to accept the person as well as the cricketer, if you were going to pick Philip. And he was, you know, as I said, he polarised views. And some people just didn't want his type of character in the dressing room. They thought he, you know, was not a particularly good team man, that he may be did his own thing a little bit. He was always fun, I'll say that, and there was always, he still is, you know, to this day, every time you see him, he's a great ad-libber, he's got great lines, and that's probably why he's been very successful in the media and in TV and, and, and stuff like that. But I think the two captains, the other ones who, who were playing when I was under me when I was captain, Alex Stewart, is, is a very straightforward sort of guy, whereas I think Michael Atherton was prepared to accept, you know, the bad sides of maybe Philip to get the quality of his bowling. Um, so they had different views on him.
0: Can I just ask a question about Tufnell as a tourist, Graham? I mean, they, we're all sort of living in environments where we're saying things like, done the Netflix, done the sourdough. Phil Tufnell's was uh, done the elephants, done the poverty. Um, did he get bored on tour? Did, did his mind wander? Did the insecurities bubble forward?
3: I, I think he had a few run-ins. I mean, it's well-documented Okay, so the first tour in 1990 to Australia, his first tour, my recollection as captain, that they were not played, the international matches were not played in the same format as they are now. It's test cricket and then one day cricket afterwards, so separate squads. In those days, uh, you had one squad and the matches were mixed up, if I remember. And I think the first international match um, was a one day match on that tour. Uh, 1990, 1990, 1991, and um, we had the uh, obligatory team meeting and he wasn't in the side, but uh, was told, like all the other players that were not picked, that you, you've got to keep yourself in good nick tonight because someone might fall over the next day or be ill or whatever and you could be in the team. Uh, I won't go into all the detail, but uh, he <laughs> ran, ran into our team manager, Peter Lush, in the lobby of the hotel at 5am-ish, Um Probably still had the same clothes on from the night before. So um, he, he picked up his first fine of many, I would say, <laughs> on the very first day of international cricket in yeah. Australia that he was involved with. So, yeah. uh, and it went on from there. In 1994, in Australia, uh, Mike Atherton, I think, was captain. I was I was on the tour, my last tour. Philip uh, had a few troubles off the field. And I remember um, the manager Mike Smith, Railingworth as the cricket supremo for England, was in Perth, Keith Fletcher, the coach, and uh, they were having a few problems with Philip, and they sent him to the doctors, and, and in the end, they, he was committed to a secure hospital, being a little bit unstable. And I remember at the hotel, they were having a meeting about Philip, what to do about Philip. Is he going to go home? Is he going to stay on tour? What's going to happen? All the hierarchy of the England team then. And lo and behold, Philip, that he didn't know, discharged himself for the hospital, went back to the hotel and knocked on their door. And the story goes that he had a swan beer in one hand and a fag in the other hand, and he knocked in and waltzed himself in and profess to say, what's going on here, lads, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is typical Philip. Um, also, I remember in India in 93, um, you know, going to the subcontinent's a difficult place to tour, you know, 27 years ago, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a bad place to tour, obviously, great cricketing nation, you know, wonderful crowds, great place to play the game. But you have to, you know, immerse yourself in the culture of the country. You know, because it is different to the Western world, the way they live, the way they eat, everything about it. And you have to embrace that culture, because if you're moaning about it all the time and bitching about this, that and everything, it's a tough tour and a long time. And I don't think Philip on that trip uh, in 93 always maybe um, looked at it in the right way.
0: We'll we'll get into some of those gory details in the second innings of this show. Um, a great a
2: great thing about toughers uh, selecting toughers for tours. It was a it was a financial decision apart from anything else because you knew he was going to give you back as much as he earned.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, interest. Can I just butt in there because interestingly, okay. So in my career, I dropped uh, Nasser Hussein from mm. the Essex team twice. Okay. For disciplinary reasons, I won't go into the detail, but anyway. Now, with Philip Roderick Tufnell, you would never drop him from the team. You would find him. Because hitting him in the back pocket was where it really hurt him. He'd be very happy if you dropped him. Quite
0: right. (laughs) He'd be absolutely
2: (laughs) delighted to sit sit the match out.
0: Yeah.
2: Especially against the West Indies.
0: Peter, when when you're working with him, he's a... You know, everyone, all of the the cuttings and everything say how he was an intelligent man. He was flawed, as we've already uh, discussed, but intelligent. Did he was he aware of the the kind of self sabotage of what it was like to be on tour and not embrace the culture and so on, or, or was, is this all in the rear view mirror? How did, how did he how did he come across uh, to you? I
2: think I think he had a fair idea because he kept getting whacked in the pocket, as Graham says. Um, that he might be doing something slightly wrong listen he he could resist everything except temptation Philip mm. uh, that was his big issue on tour um, I, I've had we've all had some absolutely fantastic nights with Phil but in, uh, you know for us it might be once in a blue moon for him the attempt was to have a fantastic night every night and and I think actually he did pretty well at that uh, not necessarily <laughs> only in Australia by the way but certainly in the Caribbean I mean you know Caribbean being his spiritual home I think uh, he, and he would I know he was fined on every tour he went for England and I'm pretty sure he was threatened with being sent home on most of them sometimes the reasons were you know he was totally um, self-sabotage sometimes things at home had got to him he you know he had a very volatile personal life uh, with all kinds of history going back to his first wife um and a story appearing when he turned out to play for england in a test match in sri lanka with the news of the world saying that his ex-wife had actually turned to prostitution so there was it was colorful let's put it that way um so th- there was always something going on with phil there was always something you know the, the cricket field was his escape actually i think and bowling was his escape from from sometimes pretty horrible reality of what he was going through and then the other escape was the escape he found in the bar I wouldn't say that Uh, he was alone in that because quite a few of the guys on tour in those early nineties enjoyed the social life, perhaps like, well, certainly more than they do now. And it was all fun and games. And for someone like Tuffers, I don't think he even imagined the possibility of not going out when you're in Sydney or you're in Melbourne or you're in Perth or you're in Brisbane or you're in Adelaide and the sun's out and it's beautiful and there's wine to be drunk his attitude I think was well what
0: else am I going to be doing uh why not yes the uh, the young people say YOLO don't they these days you only live once and hmm. uh, and gather together there the well he had nine lives of course again. being the cat he did yes. have nine lives I, I want to, to wrap up our discussion because we're, we're running out of time with a question for all three of you and I'll 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 put the question first to to Pat. Tufnell played 42 Test matches over 12 years for England uh, with various degrees of success. Did he have enough of a go at Test match cricket? Was that a fair return for him, 42 tests in in, in 12 years? I think it's the return of a highly talented cricketer who didn't do himself justice. I
1: think he should have played double the amount of tests in terms of ability and his potential danger. Left arm spinner who turns it just enough. A flight and guile merchant on overseas tours. These are big pluses for somebody like Phil Tufnell. I think that in the ledger, it must be written, didn't do himself justice. You look at so many other players who got so much more out of themselves, who lacked his particular talent. Uh, He certainly added to the gaiety of the nation. I think people will remember Phil Tufnell for all sorts of reasons not just his cricketing ability and now now that he's a personality stroke celebrity he probably settled for that but if you're talking about cricketer pure and simple he should have got more out of
2: himself Peter well the irony for me was that um you know he was an, he was a colorful tourist and England kept picking him to go on tour uh, they didn't play him so much at home uh, obviously, the pitches were in places that they went to abroad more conducive, and England needed spinners abroad. But um, I think it was telling that to, at the end of his career, when Duncan Fletcher had taken over as England coach, he was certainly not uh, of the same jib as Phil Tuffle in approach to life. And uh, when he was asked about Tuffle being selected whichever match or tour it was, he said, well, I've looked at everyone else, and frankly, I've got no choice but to pick Tufnell." So <laughs> it wasn't exactly a ringing endorsement. Um, did he get the most out of himself? God, it's a very difficult question, that. I, I think he would probably, in hindsight, say no, and that on occasions when he got too aggressive and he got too cross... Uh, he might have reined himself in a bit, but then again, you talked to him sometimes, and he said oh, maybe I wasn't aggressive enough, particularly on that tour to India in '93, when he felt, you know, he was he was treading on thin ice and maybe needed to rein himself in and didn't have the aggression in his bowling that he previously had had with success. The thing is with toughers, you you really didn't know which toughers was going to turn up one day to the next, and it was so much to do with. His confidence and feeling that he was going to do things and had the full support of people around him—he uh, was fragile. Uh, had he had
0: less, had he been less fragile, it might have been different. But you are what you are. Graham, I'll, I'll put the question in a slightly different format to you. Um, professional sports isn't the same as kind of nine to five office life, but. Many people listening will be managers in those kinds of environments, as indeed I was once upon a time. And you often have difficult people to work with, but you have to make the best of it and you have to get the the most from them. You and and Mike Atherton, he played 13 test matches for you and 19 for Michael Atherton and uh, 10 for for other captains. Should those other captains have have worked with the talent and tried to manage the uh, indiscipline? Or were they right to uh, weigh up the costs and benefits and and say that the uh, costs outweigh the benefits?
3: Every captain, and obviously you're into the era when he played at the start in the early 90s, of the coach as well having a big input into team selection. The coach was obviously a selector generally, which is still the case. Um, I, I agree with what Peter said. You know, he was a fragile character, a talented bowler, so... It didn't just come down to his skills with the ball. It came down to how he would fare against this opposition. Would he stand up to the rigours of the tour, the matches and whatever? Are you prepared to put up with the characters? Not quite what you like, but you have to accept the whole package of him. And it depended on each individual's view of him. And that's probably why he didn't play, you know, a lot of matches. And and it's always a challenge for a a manager in a company, a chief executive or a captain in a cricket team to to manage the star player. How do you get the best out of the star player? Generally, I'd say the rule of thumb is that if a star performer who is, um, shall we say, getting the job done, but not conforming to the team ethic or whatever policy you'll give them enough rope to let allow that to happen as long as they're performing well as soon as they stop performing well you're not prepared to put up with that behavior or or that character he was not a regular all the time because everyone at team selection meetings will be discussing what we've been discussing for the last 30 minutes
0: well we'll finish off our look at uh, the career of philip tufnell um with just an observation of mine uh as an England cricket fan of my generation, he gave us what we all wanted, which was to see an English cricketer win in Australia. It was just a shame it was I'm a celebrity and not the Ashes, <laughs> <That's laughs> but <laughs> never mind. <laughs> so our series of the week is India versus England in 1993. It was to be something of a tale of woe for England and that really started even before they'd uh, they'd boarded the, the flight. Pat, plenty of argy-bargy about selection. It was a media bonanza, a reporter's field day,
1: before, during, and afterwards. God's gift uh, began with... Um, it'd been well documented by now that Graham, Graham Gooch and David Gower didn't necessarily see eye-to-eye and how they could get the best out of David Gower at the age of 35. Uh, he played three test matches against Pakistan in the summer of 92 did okay got an important 70 odd scored a thousand runs for Hampshire first class uh, averaging 47 and a lot of people thought he's bound to go on the tour not least of all because his expertise against spin bowling and his massive experience but Mike Gatting same age 35 he scored a 2000 runs first class for Middlesex who's the best English batsman in the country still uh, apart from Graham Gooch And um, the general feeling was it had to be one or the other. And Gatting had just come back from his ban, the South African ban, 1989. And uh, obviously Graham as captain had something to do with um, Gatting being picked ahead of Gower. That led to a special general meeting, the MCC no less. The choleric colonels from Tunbridge Wells rolled up to NW8 and got stuck in, uh, uh, discussing a motion of no confidence in the selectors that was narrowly defeated eventually. But that set the tone for a disastrous tour in all sorts of areas. And uh, the Shires were in revolt, that David Gower, their golden boy, who uh, had not gone to South Africa, uh, he, got, uh, he got jettisoned. And Jack Russell was jettisoned also as the wicketkeeper, because Richard Blakely from Yorkshire, the general feeling was that uh, he was a superior batsman not in the same class as Russell as a keeper, obviously. Well, Blakey made seven runs in four innings in that series in, in India and kept wickets, so that didn't go down too well either. So I'm looking forward to hearing what the captain has to say about that tour.
0: <laughs> uh, Graham, what what effect does that kind of um, of disruption have on a party uh, before it sets off. Because it strikes me as the kind of thing that's instantly forgotten if things are going well. But if things are going less well, uh, surely it, it preys on players' minds? Is that, is that a first thing to say? Well,
3: I, I don't think you want any press comment or stories that uh, are going to detract from your performance. Because when you go abroad, especially a place like India, 27 years ago, you, you've got to be have unity in the team. You, you've got to embrace the culture of the country. So to have a... I think what you need to remember about tours in those days is that one squad was picked for all the cricket. The test matches, the one-day internationals, you, you pick from the same squad. Players only joined the squad if you had injuries, basically. And there was a lot of, you know, obviously conjecture about David it's well documented with the the disagreements we had um, I, I'll go on record now I've said it many times that we didn't see eye to eye on or maybe what I I wanted from him I wanted him to set the example for the team um in the way he went about his his cricket the way he practiced the you know the way he talked to all the others all those sort of things you know to be a to be a role model a mentor to all those young cricketers we had on on the tour I mean he wasn't a disruptive person at all um, but, I probably wanted maybe wrongly too much from him in that department, and that was not quite his way. What he really gave you, and some would say it's more than enough, is when he took guard, you know with the bat he was a magnificent player, the best. English batsman uh, that I played with. Boycott would dispute that probably, but uh, he was a magnificent player. So that was not a good start. The Jack Russell thing also, felt, sorry for Jack, had a lot of time for Jack, but Alex Stewart was keeping wicket. They were swapping between that those roles around about that period. And I think it was felt that you know, Richard Blakey was more of a like-for-like sort of replacement for Alex Stewart in the top order. Didn't work out like that, obviously. So It's fair to say all this time on that, you know, they're questionable decisions. It might have been different if they would have been there. Who knows? But uh, all I would say about selection is all you can do is make decisions in good faith. Sometimes, hopefully most of the time they work out, sometimes they don't.
0: Peter, I want to come to you to fill in a little bit of that background because the the India we see today, particularly through the IPL, albeit it's it's happening in Dubai at the moment, but we've seen seasons of IPL. And the India that's projected is one of sort of gleaming skyscrapers and giant neon lit adverts of MS Dhoni and drinking Coca-Cola or whatever it might be. The India of 1993 was certainly more... Uh, developed than the, the one in which you know Douglas Jardine saw off most of the Bengal tigers on, on his tours. <laughs> but um, what was it like in that kind of in-between stage, if if uh, that makes sense? Can you fill in a bit of the background?
2: Well, uh, I've, I've been trying to recall that tour uh, the last couple of days in preparation for this chat, and my head is still spinning from the place and the experience of being in India in those days. And I don't think that tour will ever leave me. I hope it doesn't. It was extraordinary, Uh, the things that we encountered and um, the things that happened right from the word go prior to the tour with the selection. But also, you know, there was a lot of civil unrest in India at the time. There'd been a burning of a temple in Ayodhya, uh, which had led to communal violence and hundreds of civilians being killed there were echoes of what had happened on the previous tour in 1984 when there were two assassinations when England were out there mrs gandhi and then the deputy british high commissioner percy norris uh, and although it was never likely to be that difficult for the england players a lot of young players found it overwhelming they just weren't used to the kind of conditions that they were uh, uh, that, that they were experiencing in india from the word go it wasn't necessarily The food, everyone gets, you know, all England cricketers get ill in India. At some point in the tour, all England journalists get ill in India at some point in the tour. But it was the noise, the sheer number of people, the colour, the passion, the excitement of the crowds, um, the smoke, the smog in Calcutta, where famously Ted Dexter who was the chairman of the England Se- Selection Committee, announced that he was going to commission a study into the effects of smog on on, um, on international athletes. It was it was literally choking a lot of these guys. And I think, I mean, I, I was just as wet behind the ears as some of them. I remember being told some definite do's and don'ts. Don't swim in any, any of the swimming pools. I didn't I get why at all, but, they, you know, it was like... You mustn't go in there. I was actually convinced by a colleague of mine that I shouldn't run the taps for a bath, that I should order a lot of mineral water from reception. In those days it was called bisleri water, which is what you needed to drink a lot of to keep cool in these very hot conditions. And I was in the process of filling up my bath with bottles of mineral water because one of these guys had told me you can't you can't sit in the tap water because you'll get some kind of bug. I mean, I was just as wet behind the ears as anyone else added to that, you know, the feeling that, you know, there, there was pressure from back home because David hadn't been picked because there was no Jack Russell, you know, everywhere they went, the England team, although they were looked after very well by the local people and welcomed with open arms. I think it was just too much of an, uh, a hit on their senses for them to relax and enjoy the place. They did try. You know, there was a lot of talk of embracing the local culture, visiting places, sitting on elephants, which they all duly did, particularly Tufnell. And, of course, the elephant's ears were only slightly less big than Tufnels. But, you know, <laughs> at, at no point did, I, did I, I or anyone feel that England had control of that trip, that they were... Did, you know They knew what they were supposed to be doing and were going to do it. India had a terrible series in South Africa. They'd had a really poor run. Mohamed Azradin was under a lot of pressure as the test captain. So they were there you know, for the taking, if England could get things sorted out. And then I have to say the selection for the first test just baffled everyone because it seemed obvious that these wickets were going to take spin. And England went in with four seamers. And neither of their first choice spinners. They actually picked Ian Salisbury, who was out there as a net bowler, uh, whereas Embry and Tufnell didn't play. And England's attack for the first test was Malcolm, Jarvis, Taylor. Ta- yeah, Paul Taylor and Chris Lewis. You know, four seamers. Well, at the end of the series, Indian spinners had taken something like 48 of the 56 England wickets to fall. So that was a clue. And they played three spinners. They played Rajesh Chowan, Venkatapathy Raju and Anil Kumble, who it was alleged didn't turn the ball off the straight. But, you know, once all the things that have been going on back home were left to Fester and the team arrived and you wanted them to get into things, I just don't think they ever got into the tour. And and actually, Graeme, your your own personal experience of the start of that tour is also... Uh, you know, significant in that regard, if you don't mind me saying so.
0: Graham, I just want to pick up the point about the uh, selection there, because you've already mentioned when we were talking about uh, Philip Tufnell earlier, that uh, he took a bit of a, a working over in one of the upcountry matches beforehand. Um and I understand that influenced the selection and Ian Salisbury, having been taken out to to, to be more of a net bowler, um, finds himself in the 11. What was the thinking uh, behind that selection?
3: Well, I think John Embry, Philip Tufnell, two experienced bowlers, both Middlesex uh, excellent bowlers. You know, John coming back into the test arena. The match at Lucknow, I think, didn't go well for them where Sidhu smashed him around a bit. And our coach, Keith Fletcher, obviously I knew well from Essex and, and really taught me most of what I know about the game. I'm not trying to uh, put the blame on him at all, but he was quite keen on the fact that in past series, where he'd been involved in India, you know, the Indian players didn't play fast bowling quite as well as they played spin, which is, you know, in theory, probably right. And uh, our spinners didn't look that effective. Ian Salisbury, although he's not the most economical of bowlers, was there to gain experience but looked like taking wickets and we hit upon the plan of playing mostly seamers Um, and obviously it didn't work because the wickets turned square and we got exposed terribly you know there was there's a a number of other things that were were going on on the tour I mean um, illness for myself didn't help at the beginning and getting off to that sort of start didn't really sort of set us up for the tour, really. So there, there was, a, you know, as I say, a, a number of things that weren't quite right. You know, with the, the David Gowett scenario at the beginning, uh, we had the travel, well, you know, the guys, Peter, who was there. The travel problems with the India Airlines strike and, and then using pilots from Kazakhstan, and, and then we had to do train trips. Nothing was smooth on that trip. That's for sure.
1: You were in and out of Delhi, weren't you, Graham, for an eternity for the fortnight leading leading up to the first test at Calcutta. Did you seem to be on a permanent
3: loop? Well, yeah. I mean, we couldn't fly on on the normal routes with Indian Airlines, which was the sort of domestic carrier, because all their pilots were on strike. And I remember one of these in Delhi, we were practising at the, I don't know Jim Carner Ground or I think the Army Ground, and one of these East European pilots was flying one of the indian planes and they obviously wasn't quite sure of the of the controls and they parked the plane they landed it off the runway just over our heads which didn't help and then we had to do all these train trips and, and then we had the fiasco with the tetley bitter our sponsor uh, all these photos were taken of us sitting on these cans of beer at the beginning promotional photographs for the sponsor of course <laughs> when we weren't playing well all these photographs hit the press. <laughs> Surprisingly, yeah, right. that mm. the boys are on the Tetley and that that's not helping their cause with the matches. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it was challenging to say the
2: least. And 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 crucially, Graham, you know, the, the question of facial hair became very important, as you remember. <laughs>
3: well, <laughs> I know. I, I, I what I do remember is uh, facial hair. There's complaints about that, and I'll, I'll tell the story about when we got back in a minute about Ted Dexter, the chairman selectors calling me for a meeting I'll, I'll leave that story to a little bit later but uh, our scorer Clem Driver who was scorer for Essex he, he fell ill and I remember in the first test traveling across the city center of Calcutta which is not the the most pollution-free of environments after each day's play with Keith Fletcher to see Clem in his little taxi with a sort of handkerchief uh, smothered in Vic just to put over my nose because I, I wasn't feeling so good i, I on, on the trip, generally. Yeah, I mean, it was just a load of things. And obviously on the field, it wasn't going well. Our attack wasn't firing. They were getting a million runs. Camberley had a series to die for. Tendulka was piling up the runs. And so we couldn't make any headway at all.
1: All this uh, and um, Ted TEDx have been an absolute godsend to the microphones <laughs> and the notebooks thro- mm. throughout the tour. And at the end, I remember he issued a statement saying that designer stubble was an issue. And I've got the quote here. Uh, it's splendidly sonorous and pompous. Quote, we should be looking at the whole question of people's facial hair. There in a nutshell, <laughs> that's, what went, that's what went wrong for the previous yeah. two and a half months. <laughs> facial I mean, hair.
2: Some, some of the players were genuinely worried about being there. While all the violence was going on, I mean, it didn't come near the England team. But there were knock-on effects. Like when we went to Lucknow, and you know, a couple of armed blokes just wandered into the room that Robin Smith and Neil Fairbrother was sharing. That just they just walked in through the door. They happened to be soldiers employed to uh, protect the players but you never knew did you one bloke with a gun you know you, you run first and ask questions later I remember at the ground when Sidi was smashing embers over the rope four sixes in each innings there was a crowd a very large crowd there just under half of the crowd were blokes with guns and the England players kept being persuaded and encouraged and reassured that there was no cause for alarm. Then they were looking around the grounds at all these people with rifles and thinking, well, if there's no <laughs> cause for alarm, what are these blokes doing here?
1: And it was short a short straw if you're fielding down on the boundary, wasn't it? I seem to remember rocks were thrown rather than flowers.
2: Well, that was in Jam Poor. That was in a, a one-day international match, which for no reason anyone could understand, someone threw a little spike at Devon Malcolm.
3: I remember Lucknow was nicknamed... Not-so-lucky Lucknow. <laughs> yeah. because Mike Atherton was completely ill, and I think... Uh, I remember Clem driving the scorer. He was doing the and sitting in amongst the crowd, Yeah, and they yeah. were all lending all these uh, rulers and pencils and that mm. and having a bit of a laugh. Some of us who looked into a little bit of the history of India... Of course, uh, Lucknow is one of the places where there was a big siege, wasn't there? There was. The amazing, yes, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yes. yes. Don't look now, they should have called it. Yes,
3: yes. <laughs> Well, we were definitely under siege that trip. That's One I'm of
2: the calling. lovely things with Clem was he had this massive pair of old binoculars that he used to do uh, help him with the scoring, just to see the scoreboard because he was miles away or see what was going on. And he was surrounded by these guys who were having a fantastic time, the local guys, uh, and he would just put his binoculars down uh, next to him and they would be passed from one purse to the next and back down the road so everyone could look <laughs> through the binoculars and when he needed them, he just put his hand up and the binoculars were returned to him, safe <laughs> and sound, so he'd carry on with the scoring. It, in the end, it was Dermot Reeve's mum who took over the official scoring, Monica yeah. Reeve, yes. uh, after Clem sadly had to go home.
1: She she enjoyed the she enjoyed the upgrade because she, she turned up initially on backpackers' uh, turns. Yeah. She wanted to do India, as it were, and also to see De- uh, Dermot. But Dermot was absolutely delighted that mum got upgraded and she got all the five-star facilities that you'd expect and uh, a lady of mature years. So Dermot was quite pleased about that. But about, about Clam Graham, Clem, there's no secret. He, he, liked, he liked a glass or two, didn't he? He, he
3: particularly. Uh, he, he liked, he liked a glass of uh, whatever. I mean, he's, uh, there's a great story at Essex. He I did score him for a long, long time. He was a supporter in the first instance and he had a company retired and then he had nothing to do so they got him to score um basically his his nighttime um ritual was to drink scotch and water which probably in india is not the worst thing to be no. honest because they always no. used to say it's kill a few germs um but then some trips mainly with essex not with england that he would say i'm having a non-drinking week okay <laughs> so his yeah. non-drinking week meant he was drinking wine
0: I remember. But Jonathan Agnew uh, tells tales of being certain he was about to die as an Uzbekistani uh, pilot attempts to find the uh, airfield in some uh, (laughs) some rural place in northern India. I mean, what what were you getting down the line from? from, Well, there was uh, there was one
1: one hair raising uh, story. I, I was presenting Test Match Special every every game uh, in Broadcasting House at uh, the crack of dawn and, uh, and looking at the monitor and everything else. I remember thinking to myself, my God, I'm glad, we're, I'm, glad I'm not there. There was one occasion when the, the plane came to a juddering stop just a few yards from the fence and the co-pilot came over the intercom. I won't attempt to do the accent because it's disrespectful, but basically said, we've done this with the grace of God. we've landed safely we've had a total hydraulic failure (laughs) that's that's all right then Uh, this is not that important but i do recall that first test match in calcutta because our line kept going down Mm. to the tms commentators and I, i do recall trying to commentate through the fog through the mist rather, absolutely appalling. It was an occasion I was convinced that Paul Taylor had got a wicket and everybody was running towards him. Basically, they were running up the other end because it was the end of the over. So I was a total shambles in the, in the sports room that day. Uh, but what I do remember in cricketing terms, Graham perhaps might agree that Din's unbeaten 100 on day one was the absolute crucial innings of the series because he came in at 93 for three. They were in trouble. 114 on the end of the day, and he got 182 set up the series because uh, his place was on the line then that day.
0: Yeah, I just want to to interject there because some listeners won't necessarily have seen Muhammad Azaruddin bat, and Mm. his reputation has been sullied uh, uh, over the years. But as a a batsman, he was the dreamiest of of right-handed, tall uh, stroke players who, who just sort of defined what it was like to have that extra bit of time that class gives. Uh, but I suppose you can't really appreciate that when you're chasing leather at uh, 100% humidity and 100 degrees Fahrenheit, Graham.
3: Well, you know, he, he was a, a sublime player. Um, very difficult to set a field to... Very wristy, like a lot of the subcontinent players are, and could manoeuvre the ball around on both sides of the wicket. But what was really difficult with him was that um, if you bowled off stumps, say, for instance, a, a pace bowler, he might well um, either hit the ball a bit inside out through square cover or he might whip it through mid-wicket, he could go either way. And then if he bowled outside off stump, where most people would try and hit it through the covers, he would hit it the other side. So it was completely opposite and very difficult. And uh, I'm, I'm just looking at the scorecard now. He scored his 182 off 197 balls. I mean, nowadays, it would probably be a, about half of the course. But in those days, that was amazingly
2: quick. It was a beautiful innings, I remember. I mean, uh, again, the assault on the senses that morning in Calcutta, um, firecrackers were being lit on the on the terraces there was smog in the air at one point just before the start of the game you couldn't it was very hard to see from one end of the ground to the other and the noise oh my god the noise is almost indescribable it's like I, I expect if you were on the field when the noise was at its height you'd have to stand right next to the person next to you and pretty much shout to be heard it was uh it was a bombardment of the senses, but Azradin, as you said, was absolutely sublime on the final morning on the final morning, they only needed forty three to win India. They eventually got
1: home by eight wickets twenty five thousand or thereabouts turned up on the final morning, just as he them get forty odd runs the mm-hmm. yeah, enthusiasm was remarkable,
2: wasn't it no, fantastic well, c- yeah.
3: crowds in those days and and the tour I did before that you know I mean. I mean, Eden Gardens is one of the great stadiums of world cricket. For the side, you know, we played the eighty-seven World Cup final. There was 100,000, maybe more than 100,000. But generally in test matches in that era and before, you'd have a full house. You'd have 20,000 people outside the ground and 5,000 people outside your hotel.
0: Yeah. Mm. Can can I just um, explore that point a little? Because Christopher Martin Jenkins, writing in The The Telegraph, I, I think, he wrote this article that was almost a kind of apocalyptic in its its view, saying the standing of Test cricket in India is at stake in the three-match series because there was some concern that the crowds wouldn't turn up and that the uh, malign influence of one-day cricket had uh, taken too much of a grip on, on Indian cricket fan. But um, it didn't turn out that way. That was one of the reasons why there were so many
2: one day internationals before the, before the test, why there were one day internationals before the test started, and why there were eight one day internationals on the tour and only three test matches, because the Indian board had shared the same concern that people were not going to turn up for the test matches. Of course, once in India started to thump England virtually on a daily basis, uh, the crowds that came stayed, and the ones that hadn't gone in the first place all turned up. And it was a cacophony. I mean, I, 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 I remember of, of all the experiences I've had covering cricket over the years, and there's been a few, good and bad, that the noise on that first morning of that first test in Calcutta stays with me still. India had won the World Cup, hadn't they, nine years earlier in 83. So they were building on that new
1: audience and the glamour of it all, plus the traditional love of test cricket, obviously, subsequently IPL has eaten into that um, traditional love of the game. But at that stage in 92, it was a mixture of both cricketing cultures in India.
2: Well, that, that game of luck now we've been talking about, I, I, which was um, uh, the rest of India against England, I think it was. I, there were comfortably over 15,000, 16,000 people there every day, even though a lot of them had guns, as I said. But they, you know, there was huge support for the game. And everywhere you went, I mean, I was mistaken for Mike gatting on a couple of occasions. I can't imagine why by the way <laughs> um but chased for my autograph on a golf course somewhere. I can't remember where that was Lucknell, Bhubaneswar, Katak, and this huge this small crowd had started to gather because I was playing with a couple of other journals and i had a, a I had an Indian an England uh, T-shirt on me. Some, someone had given it to me. Started playing. Somebody shouted out, "Mike Getting, Mike Getting, And for the rest of the round, we were we were followed by a crowd of about thirty or forty kids. All of them wanted my autograph, and I signed. I signed, <laughs> and you and you charged. Well, of course, yeah.
0: <laughs> Graham, I, I I want to ask you a, a little about uh, Anil Kumble, who India went in the the best of form in Test cricket. They played mainly away, but they uh, they hadn't won. Many test matches in the uh, couple of years or so before this series, and I think it was Keith Fletcher uh, had had a look at Cumbly uh, and and decided that he didn't really turn the ball. He of course went on to take over six hundred test match wickets. Uh, what what was it about Cumbly that made him such a, a, an operator, both home and then later abroad?
3: Well, I think for uh, firstly, for for an Indian player, he's quite tall for an Indian player. He made his debut in 1990 at Manchester in the second test. I think we realised early on that he was a different type of uh, leg spin bowler. Most leg spin bowlers would put side spin on the ball with a slightly lower arm Shane Warne. Others like him, uh, he was a tall guy with a very high arm action. And so he bowled as his career progressed. Lots of top spin, lots of googly's. His leg spinner wasn't his most dangerous ball, but doesn't mean he obviously couldn't get wickets. As you say, he got 619 test wickets and he extracted a lot of bounce and he made it awkward for the batsman. Got lots of bat pad catches. And if you'd have played, well, India, even now, you know, lots of excitable fielders round the bat in those days, and, and of course, the local umpires as well. So it was it was a it was a tough gig for a overseas batsman, and you know he, he developed himself into a brilliant bowler. Bowled very tight, bowled very straight. Gave you nothing. A traditional spinner. You can play the sweep shot maybe if it's outside leg, or even if it's outside off, as a, a way of releasing the pressure a little bit against him. Very difficult to do that because he bowled wicket to wicket, bowled very straight, got the bounce and it was it was very difficult. And he, you know, he became one of the great bowlers. I see 132 matches, 619 wickets. I mean, that's a fantastic record.
0: But he looked significantly quicker than other spinners through the air. It really went down there at quite a lick. Absolutely. He, he, he bowled it quicker. It was a different style of bowler. You know,
3: he created pressure. It wasn't the fact that he was bowling wicket taking balls all the time, but you know, the better the player you're up against the, the, as a bowler, the more you've got to create pressure, and he he did that with abundance.
0: The last thing I want to say about this uh, this Test match is again to to you, Graham, if I may, because this was your hundredth Test, and you were you were given a, 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 some kind of cake or trophy or whatever, which had a, a misspelling on it, but you weren't in the in the best of Nick health wise. Uh, what was what was it like to to be Playing your hundredth test against the the tumultuous background the uh, the fact that things hadn 't gone so well and feeling more than a bit dicky yourself
3: well, if you can achieve a hundred tests, you know you've played for a long time and you know you're sort of a, it's a nice mark for your career because you know you you've showed a degree of consistency to get to that place. I wasn't in the best of health. Most of the tours I went on everywhere. I I didn't have any ill health on this trip. I I didn't suffer with tummy troubles, which you normally get in that part of the world. At that time, you've eaten something. But I picked up some sort of virus early on and I I couldn't shake it off in my head and I I couldn't concentrate as well as, you know, I I would like to. And I struggled in the first test and I, I remember in the second test, Uh, You're probably going to talk about this because it's got the famous prawn incident. But on the morning of the match, I woke up feeling terrible. I made myself sick, trying to shake it off. I went out to try to practice um, and I just said to Keith Fletcher, I can't play. I don't think that's the one and only time in my career. You know, with injuries, broken fingers, just went out and played uh, sometimes, but I just couldn't shake it off. And I remember going back to the hotel and hallucinating, really. I couldn't keep awake. and I never, ever felt like that. So um, it was very, very difficult.
0: Well, um, England lose the first test by eight wickets and a, a narrative begins to develop. Um, and as you've already said, preceding the second test, there is the the story of, of Prawn Gate. I mean, Pat, am I, am I being fair there that the, um, that, that the media pick up on something that is going wrong? create a narrative, give it a snappy title like Gate, and whether it fits with the facts or not, that becomes the story because there was more than just Graham going down with uh, the Lurgies at the time. Sure. I mean,
1: Carl Bernstein and uh, Bob they have got a lot to answer for. Everything has got the gate uh, attached <laughs> to it, hasn't it? 1974 Watergate. Um, if England had been playing well, uh, it wouldn't, wouldn't have meant, meant a hill of beans. All this stuff about them being scruffy with designer and stubble and wearing jeans and all the rest of it. The Indian players themselves weren't exactly sartorily impressive when they turned up at press conferences, but the fact is that they were winning. It was just bad luck. And uh, for, for something like Mike Gatting to, to, to be laid low uh, by a food ailment was uh, was unprecedented. It was the equivalent to an eclipse. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 these things happened. They were eating in a high high class restaurant, and a high class hotel, and to the best of my knowledge, Chinese food wasn't on the banned list. It's not like slipping in for a dodgy biryani or a a, a, a strange ruby. Fact remains, they were unlucky. Simple as that. Uh, and you you get these kind of things in India. You roll with the punches. And, and you learn to live with it. And in fact, whenever England have won in India, I've, it's invariably been a tremendous performance and a great example of team spirit. They were just unlucky. Napoleon and his quote, give me lucky generals. Uh, everything went wrong for England on that tour. And only some of it, I believe, uh, the finger should be pointed at them about.
2: It's happenstance that these things happen. Yeah, uh, there was drama even before that, of course, in the match at Vishakapatna when the rest of India played in England. Um, Tuffers, who'd been under a lot of pressure, you know, he was, he was picked as a senior spinner with Embers and didn't get a game in the first test and he was playing for a place in the second test. Nothing much was going right for him. He got a no ball eleven times by the local umpire Jaya Prakash, and he he maintains to this day that he wasn't bowling no balls. And then suddenly there was a ray of light. He lured Tendulkar down the track, beat the shot. Dick Blakey nearly has to collect the ball and take the bails off Tendulkar's out. Tuffers in the test side. Unfortunately, Blakey didn't gather the ball. Tendulkar got back, and Tuffers played uh, football with his with his England cap all the way down to his mark at third man. The next at the end of the over uh chased around the hotel by graham to find where he was when they got back he was actually hiding in the in the bathroom of robin smith's room um uh, <laughs> find so there we go there's another thing it was there was a wonderful story of Vic marks of the observer who uh, had just written uh, his report about how Tuffler couldn't possibly be trusted to play in the second test because he was such in such a terrible state of mind after a night talking to the Reverend Andrew Wigfield Digby, the pastoral counsellor, he came out the next day and bowled brilliantly, took wickets, and Vic, who'd written his left-hand page about how Tuffles shouldn't play in the next test, had to write his right-hand page on why Tufnel <laughs> must play in the next test. A great case of the left-hand page not knowing what the right-hand page is doing. But that was that volatility to it all the time. Get to address. get orders an extra plate of prawns, Gucci's out the match, and it rolled on. Graham,
0: uh, what was it like uh, trying to track down Philip Tufnell?
3: I, I didn't track him down. I went looking for him. I mean, <laughs> to be fair, in India, in a place uh, like Bishop of that you know, you, you're not going to go out of the hotel. There's nowhere to go. So you're either going to be around the pool, you're going to be in one of the restaurants, or you're going to be in your room. But I couldn't find him anywhere. And uh, Robin Smith did own up to me, I don't know, afterwards, after the tour or wherever. But um, I probably was going to... Uh, give him a little bit of a talking to about disrespecting the three Lions. But anyway, you know, as a, as a, as a player, you have to accept that people make mistakes. You know, he, his fielding was not, I wouldn't call it top notch. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's unfair, you, you know, you behave like that, but he won't be the last player to do that sort of thing. and It still happens to this day.
0: Um, well, it was his fielding was barely even notch, really. But um, <laughs> yes, uh, pots and kettles come to mind. But um, Peter, in the in the press box, there, England are looking to get uh, back into the series. The, the news comes back from the toss that it's been lost, and India are going to bat. Um, I expect word went round that you know, strap yourselves in. We're going to be uh, looking at uh, a lot of runs here, and sure enough, uh, five hundred and sixty of them uh, were scored before. Uh, Din pulled out and uh, let England uh, have a bit of torture?
2: Well, uh, Sudu got 100. I think Cambly, who was in sublime form throughout the series, 50-odd. Tendulka, there you go, 165. Those runs that uh, everyone knew he was capable of producing He, you know, he, when he played as well as he can play. you know, Even the best bowlers struggled. But England, once again, had picked three seamers. They also this time did have Tuffle in the side and also got Graham Hick to bowl some more off-spin, as he had done in the first test, and Salisbury played too. So the balance of the side was probably better in terms of the bowling. But Gat wasn't well. I mean, he Gat played. Of course, Graham didn't play. But Gat, who was ill, and Robin Smith, I think, who also had suffered from that night out with the prawns, both played. And for some reason, Mike Atherton didn't. This was someone, something that I couldn't understand, or whether he was still suffering from uh, a virus himself. But... The England batting lineup: Robin Smith opened, for instance, with Alex Stewart going, hit, going in three, Gatting four, Fairbrother five, and Blakey was in at six, which is pretty high. I mean, the, the, you know, once again, the Indian batsmen knew exactly how to play England's bowlers um, in their conditions. Uh, Azruddin wasn't successful this time, but Cumbly was a surprise to us. We knew about Tendulkar and we knew about Azruddin, but Cambly, um, I should say, because... Uh, he did look flashy. He did look like he'd get him outside, uh, uh, get him out outside the off stump. And so England kept bowling outside the off stump and he kept cracking it through the covers Before uh, You learn from experience. Uh, I just think by then, you know, that, that, that it was unstoppable. The, the uh, negative momentum against England for, you know, some of the reasons were self-inflicted, some weren't, the bad luck that Pat's mentioned, interesting selection, as we've said before. Once it started... It was so hard to stop. And they didn't have their best batsman to play in that match to even you know try and push against it. Uh, and I think they were just there for the taking by that stage. The major event in that Test match, uh, Peter, surely was Bob's
1: Bistro. Surely that was the highlight. Well, Bob's Bob's Bistro, Bob Bennett, the tour manager. Yeah. Was it um, baked beans, corned beef and bread? That was his lunchtime buffet.
2: non bread, yeah. Naan baked bread, beans, yeah. corned beef and non bread. They set up Bob's Bistro uh, because England didn't want to eat anything other than that. I would have thought the major event, and this is not being disrespectful to Chris Lewis, who got a very nice 100 yes. in the second innings, and yes. Phil Tufnell, by the way. He was 22 not out in that second wow. innings. His wow. highest test score um, was uh, a quite remarkable drop by Mike Gatting at Silly Point off the bowling yeah. of Ian Salisbury. Now, if ever you're in 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 a, in a fragile, volatile or disappointed state of mind, may I recommend you go on YouTube where you will find... Uh, a, t- uh, a clip entitled the funniest drop catched in the history of cricket and this is the drop catch of mike Gatting standing at city point under a ball that was literally lobbed to him off the batsman the shoulder of the batsman's bat and he somehow managed to uh, it hit him on the hands and spilled forward and it was a quite unbelievable drop but it just about summed up everything that england were going through they couldn't even catch a cold or literally, Gat couldn't even catch a ball that he, that I, you know, anyone could have caught with their eyes closed. Frankly, if they yes. put some bread round it, Peter, he'd have been okay, <laughs>
0: and then he'd have eaten it. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the umpire was already raising the finger as uh, Gat was dropping the ball. I understand.
3: I think what happened was I can't remember who was batting, no. but I think Gat as the ball went up in that split second sledged the batsman saying that we've got we've got something oh. to the effect of we've got you now they thought that he'd got away with a few decisions or whatever it took his eye off the ball
2: yeah and the rest is history i think i think he yes, actually you said you're out you're out now matey uh at which point, matey said, I don't think I am actually get." <laughs> <laughs> and the next most bizarre thing that happened was at the end of the game, for some reason, I think all the England players were awarded with bicycles, um, which uh, one or two of them started cycling around the outfield at the close of play when they'd lost the test match by uh, quite a considerable margin and in innings, obviously, and, and the rest. And one of the local sponsors decided this was a good idea to give them all bicycles.
0: Well, uh, England got on their bikes and uh, went off to uh, Bombay, as it was for the third test. Graham, uh, you're returning as captain, but uh, how do you how do you deal with that? You're two nil down. The series is gone. Um, the the narrative is that that this is just a disaster. And yet you've got to go out and play five days of very challenging Test match cricket.
3: Well, I mean, as a professional, you you just carry. On, don't you? You have to, but um, I would say it was difficult. You know, I don't, I don't remember ever missing a match for illness like that before. I would like to add that there was quite a few players round that table in the hotel that night. All had the same food, mm. but only two of us really—Gat uh, and myself—really struggled. And he, he, you know, he manly went out there and played. Uh, the third test, we won. We, we got a decent score. What we, what? what we thought was a decent score. In the first innings, three hundred odd. McGrath hit getting getting a hundred, and we thought we had a chance. Um, alas, it was not to be because uh, they piled up six hundred odd in that match. Yeah, I mean they had it over on us all the time. We could never get into the games. And uh, it, It's tough when you're losing, isn't it? You you know you've got to go out there and try and prove on your last performance. And I would say when people ask me about that tour and that period of cricket in the nineties, towards the end of my captaincy era. You know, if you look at the player list over that, that tour and also around about that time, there was lots of excellent players and we were always capable of winning matches. But where England struggled in that period, and maybe for most of the 90s, was the fact that they couldn't get any consistency. That was always our problem. I mean, we were consistent on that tour. We were hopeless on every game. But uh, well, in the wrong in the wrong sense... So it was difficult,
0: it, as I say. I mean, looking at the scorecard, I mean, England did not throw in the towel. They they batted two hundred and twenty overs uh, in the match, but they were just outplayed. They were outplayed by the Indian spinners and the uh, and the Indian batsmen. Um, but there was no throwing in of the of the towel, even if it it was a kind of grim prospect of. Uh, 2-0 down and a, a test match to play. Uh, Pat, what was the, the, the mood back home? Uh, well, I think, I think uh, picking up on Graham's point there about uh,
1: inconsistency, you can home in on Chris Lewis and Graham Hick, for example, because the previous test match, Chris Lewis, splendid 100. His maiden test match, 100. He reached on his 25th birthday. He got it with a six, and he was beginning to show what he could do when he really bent his back as a fast bowler rather than just as a stock bowler. And I think we had justifiably had big hopes of Chris Lewis then. And then Graham Hick, it's his 22nd Test match innings before he got his maiden Test 100, but he got it in the Grand manner, 58 for four when he came in. All sorts of analogies would have be been made with Steve Waugh at that time, who'd taken a long time to get his first Test match under for Australia. And there's perfectly reasonable to assume that this was the coming of age time for Graham here because it was a superb innings. That was 1993 and yet he continued never quite to do himself justice and the same thing would apply to Chris Lewis. So, If you would like to pick out just two players with enormous talent and potential, underachieving according to what they could do for a fallible, fragile England temperamentally during that period, it would be those two.
0: Yeah, and they they played two test matches the next summer and both were dropped. I think uh, Graham Hick was dropped about
1: thirteen times yeah. uh, in his test career. Now, I'm, uh, I've always maintained that if he and Mark Ramprakash had been the beneficiaries of central contracts long before they came in in two thousand, I think they both would have played hundred test matches. Uh,
0: indeed. So, uh, Peter, uh, in- England um, get a quick punch in the face in the uh, in Sri Lanka in the single test that they played on the way home they did they did okay in the in the one dayers but what what's your um, kind of overall view then of of that uh, of that tour uh, to India and then the one match in Sri Lanka
2: Well, it's probably still my favourite ever tour. I mean, people uh, look aghast when I say that because England lost every single match and I wasn't glorying in that at all. But it was a tremendous experience travelling around India and seeing those places. Of course, I was doing it as a Sunday newspaper reporter, so there was a bit of spare time for me in between uh, in-depth analysis and uh, investigative pieces and golf courses. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I I was able to relax a bit and see a bit more of it than the players did. And then you kept coming, then the stories just came to you. I mean, it was the gift that kept on giving, I'm afraid. And it, uh, none of us in, uh, enjoyed uh, the knowledge that people were being ill or were, were breathing in the smog or uh, had to, uh, hadn't shaved today. Um, and not, none of us uh, enjoyed necessarily the fact that Uh, England were being beaten up on the field because deep down, you know, although we are, of course, impartial, it is better if you're writing about a team doing well, there's instant gratification in writing about a team that's doing so badly. And if they're doing badly, they may as well do terribly because that's, you know, why not? But uh, I, I, I look back on it and, as I say, my head's still spinning from all the experiences that uh, that I remember. And it just, in hindsight and in retrospect, was tremendous fun. Um, however, I did sympathise all the way through with England players who I felt had gone out there and been put in a very difficult situation from ball one in terms of the controversy that had been created by the selection, in terms of the intense fear that was being generated because of the communal violence because the air india pilots had gone on strike because there was just a feeling of unease in the whole country and then young guys who hadn't experienced it before going out into the cauldron of calcutta and madras and bombay and from which they never actually had their feet on the ground it was interesting to me that the two guys as you've mentioned who got those runs chris lewis and graham hick considered by some to have fragile temperaments were two who actually found strength in all that adversity uh, and one or two of them never just never got out of it never got out of bed really uh, i'm afraid Uh, it was all too much every single international match uh, all the test matches were lost and rightly so uh, england were clubbed Uh, at the end of it uh, you know i wanted the tour to go on because i was having so much fun (laughs) But you could see England just wanted to drag themselves on the, play,
0: the, on the plane and, and get home as soon as possible. Uh, Pat, Ted Dexter, he was often given to eccentric uh, pronouncements. But in some ways, his concern for the well-being of the players and smog was very much before its time. But it was then it was reported as a, a, another kind of excuse or a, a distraction. What was the view of, of Ted Dexter in his role?
1: Well, I think <laughs> I think many people acknowledge that Ted Dex has been a great player for a start, and also a really original, interesting thinker. <laughs> but he did put his foot in it on a regular basis, and we in the media we we wanted Ted Dex to stay as chairman of selectors for evermore because of that kind of aspect. It was a very challenging interesting character with a lot of quirky ideas about cricket. I know people like David Gower and Mike Atherton uh, particularly enjoyed him because of his, uh, his imaginative take on cricket uh, and I know Graeme you, you, weren't, uh, you weren't against him either. Graham. didn't he come and see you at your house at the end of the tour for, for a debriefing which turned out to be a little bit more different, different than, you, than you anticipated?
3: Yeah, well, I I got on well with Ted, and um, which was surprising, really, because he's the one who quoted the phrase before I became captain of England. It's like being hit in the face with a wet fish. Yes, um, which <laughs> didn't um, didn't <laughs> impress me. But anyway, I accepted it, fair enough. And then at the end of the tour, he he phoned me up as chairman of selectors, and he came to my house in in Shenfield in Essex, and. Uh, I was waiting for him and I'm thinking, well, he, he's going to give me a bit of a, a going over here about the fact that, you know, how bad we were. We lost all three tests. There was all this controversy on the tour. We didn't really feature in the, on these turning wickets at all. We could not get anything going. And, and I was prepared for that. And what was I going to say? And I was nervous and worried. Anyway, his motorbike drove up the driveway with the leathers on, helmet stripped him off there was the blazer and mcc tie on underneath so that that was a bit quirky to start with and he went on about the um the press coverage and um the the Tetley bitter and all the photos and how bad image that looked and and the, the non shaving and everything and he didn't really mention anything about the cricket and uh, and I'm thinking well I'm you know, I'm here to receive the rocket to take my punishment and he said nothing about it and then the straw that broke the camel's back for me is when he said about tracksuits. He said he looked so bad on the on the TV, and on the, on the press coverage, you know, the, the news coverage in those days. Oh, everyone wearing tracksuits. And I said, tracksuits, I tell him. What are you talking about? I said, i expecting you to give me a right rollicking here. Don't talk to me about tracksuits. i have been wearing tracksuits, England, for practice since 1986. Anyway, so he went on about it. And, and in the end, I had to agree that, because he wanted he wanted he said he said this summer against australia in 93 he said i think we should practice in um in whites like full whites sweaters and all that and i said hang on ted i said you know let's, let's concentrate on the cricket anyway it went on and on and on and uh, in the end we agreed that we would wear white track suits for the following <laughs> series
1: <laughs> Graham, what was his tremendous advice to you about how to bat because my god Dexter knew how to bat, and he had some fantastic theories, many of them more interesting than others. But what was his specific
3: advice he once gave you? I'll come to that in a second, but I mean, I must admit, he, he has a website, as some of you might know, where he puts his thoughts and opinions on cricket, and he's certainly worth reading, even at 83 years of age. He, he was a fantastic guy, very, uh, you know, slightly left field a little bit, but um, very interesting to read. He once told me, he said, he said you've got a bat in a bath not in a, a piss pot, and, and, and pretty many people would know, didn't want to swear really, but what a piss, a piss pot is, like a potty, I suppose they mean, little round bowl. And what he meant was that as a batsman, if you stood in a bath and, and you tried to bat, there's only, there's only one way or two ways you can move, forward and backwards, basically. You can't move sideways. You can't move across the crease. You've got to move forward and back. So in a way, it's, it's a good analogy and a, and a good piece of advice.
0: Talk about left field. Ted was in the next field most of the time. <laughs> well, the, the stars are aligning in terms of the time, so I just want to give Graham the uh, the last word here. Graham, we hear a lot these days at the end of a tour like this of taking away the positives and sort of learning experiences and all of that. But what really do you, you as you as a, a, a veteran of the most experienced member of the party take away from that? And what about the the young players too? Do they do they look on it as a as you know of being forged in, in fire, those later careers, of the likes of Michael Atherton and, and Alex Stewart? Or do you just think, oh God, and then just sort of put it in a box uh somewhere, lock it away?
3: I, I don't think there was any positives really. In in terms of the cricket on the field, the technical side, uh, we we were outplayed. We we weren't prepared enough for the type of wickets. We couldn't handle how to stage your innings, how to compile, compose innings enough to be consistent in those conditions where the ball turns square. Atherton and, and Stewart um, in particular, uh, as Robin Smith, as youngish batsmen. They would have learned a lot for future tours. They had to learn that, you know, on tour, to be successful, you have to embrace the country. Because if you're always, you're moaning a little bit and and feeling sorry for yourself, that will impact on how successful you're going to be on the field. That will take your energy and your focus away from what you should be doing is, uh, you know, embracing not only the culture and, and the, the cities and, and the way people live in, in that part of the world, but also the cricket grounds. And I heard Peter say of the of the Calcutta, I mean, in a way, looking back at it for me, when I ever played in India, there's something special about when you turned up to an Indian cricket ground in those days, you had that sort of mist in the place, you know, it's like early morning, as uh, when you were there, there was a sort of different environment the matches were in unlike when you get over here or any other place in the world and you have to embrace all those things and the best players generally throughout the world nowadays and in the past they you know they adjust themselves to those conditions they're the ones that are most successful
0: Well, it took even the the great Australian side uh, a long time to adjust to winning in India, and I think Steve Waugh said it was the the last mountain to climb, and and I think they they did. Uh, It remains only, really, for me to thank our guests this week, so my thanks to Pat Murphy. Thank you very much, Pat. Pleasure, Gary. To Peter Hayter. Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks to you. And Graham Gooch. Thank you very much indeed, Graham.
3: Not a problem. Thank you.
0: And it's a goodbye from me, Gary Naylor. We'll be back soon with the next episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. And remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.